You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, welcome back to Labor Relations Radio. So if you're a subscriber to LaborUnionNews.com's Morning Digest, or if you visited LaborUnionNews.com, you will know that there are a lot of articles that we go through, we post, we send out. And part of the reason for that is we like our readers who are primarily involved in union-related issues or labor relations or labor attorneys or human resources to have the full picture of what's going on around the country. And in the last four months that we've been online, we've got about 3,500 articles that we've posted, hand curated, tagged, um, as well as categorized. So the reason we do that is if you want to look something up, you can go in and type in a tag. If it happened in um, ABC Canada or not Canada, but the United States, you can go in there and look up if it happened in this town. So that brings me to the article that caught my eye about two weeks ago out of the Allentown's Morning Call. And it's a it's a article that's titled, In a Case That Could Be Destined for the Supreme Court, Allentown's Symphony Musician Says He Shouldn't Have to Pay Union Dues to Perform. And I'm not going to read you the whole article, uh, but it's a, a case involving a plaintiff named Glenn Wilkowski, who's a principal timpanist for the orchestra, and he has been since 2001. He stopped paying union dues and has basically been barred from playing. So this case involves the public sector and a Supreme Court case called Janus. And what caught my eye about this is it's it's involving the symphony, which is a non-for-profit but accepts public funds. And the ramifications of it, I thought as I was reading it, could be huge. So the the plaintiff's attorney is a firm called the Fairness Center. And I reached out to the Fairness Center about a week ago, and I've been traveling and our schedules weren't lining up, but I was able to line up an interview with Nathan McGrath, who's president of the Fairness Center. And it's a public interest legal group that represents those who object to mandatory public sector union membership. And as you'll hear in a few moments, when I spoke to them earlier this morning, they have a, a broader mission than just dues cases, but this was a very interesting case, and I wanted to have him on so that we could kind of talk through some of the issues. In any case, here's Nathan McGrath, president of the Fairness Center. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, Nathan McGrath, welcome to Labor Relations Radio. How are you today? I'm doing really well. Thanks so much for having me, Peter. Sure. So um, let's talk about one of your your cases I saw as I was posting um, article about it on Labor Union News, and it intrigued me. Um, but before we get into that, let's talk about what the Fairness Center does. Sure. The Fairness Center is actually a public interest law firm or a 501c3. And we always say we're a national law firm with a state focus. And that really goes to a lot of um, how we conduct our litigation strategy. 
And uh, really, we focus on um, public, the public sector, and our mission is to help those who have been hurt by public sector union officials. And, uh, you know, it goes anywhere from public employees to uh, membership organizations who have had uh, their members who have been hurt by public uh, sector union officials. And we've actually even represented a local uh, union. It was the uh, local firefighters in New Haven. And their local union was trying to disaffiliate from a state affiliate union. And so they called us up and said, would you be interested in representing us? And we said, sure, you fall in our mission statement. So uh, we offered representation to them as well. And we've represented grad students and nurses. And so there's actually uh, a really broad array of folks that we end up representing. You were saying uh, um, a few minutes ago before we started recording that you're, I don't know if you want to call it business, but the the caseload that you've had has grown and grown. Yeah, it's, it's, um, exploded really. So when I first got to the firm back in 2016, I I would say we had probably around 10 cases, something like that. And today, as we sit, we have over 60 open matters right now. Uh, I think in the last year, we've, our clients have increased by 250%, something like that. And, um, you know, that's partly because we started with a focus in Pennsylvania and representing, um, those who, you know, clients just in Pennsylvania. And then 2018, we moved into Connecticut. And then in 2021, starting in January, we moved into the state of New York. And uh, I think just in last year, which was our first year there, we handled uh, or in the process of handling something over um, like 30 cases. So uh, definitely expansion in, in the different states has really increased our, our load as well. So let me ask you, and this is both clarifying for me and maybe the listeners as well. When you have these cases in different states, um, you're filing at both the federal level, depending on the case, and then at what state level as well? That's right. Federal court, state court, and we're even in front of uh, the labor boards as well, so um, the state public employee labor board. So at the national level and private sector, you have the National Labor Relations Board, and they handle you know all private um, uh, disputes, those types of things, anything under the National Labor Relations Act. Well, each state has a public labor relations board. Uh, they sometimes name it a little bit differently, but and that has jurisdiction over the state's public employee um, labor law. And again, it can go under different terms, but that's the that's kind of the equivalent of the NLRB in each state. So now when you have, when you talk about like Connecticut and New York and what are, whatever other states, you don't have offices in each of those states. You're primarily, your office is in Pennsylvania, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah, at the moment we have uh, kind of our flagship office in Harrisburg, PA, and then we do have an office in Albany, New York as well. Oh, okay. Interesting. So then you've got attorneys in each of those states. We do. Yep, we have attorneys. Um, I think Connecticut's uh, where we practice under um, Pro Hoc Vice, basically um, temporary admission rules right now. Uh, we're looking for an attorney, maybe licensed in, in Connecticut. So if one of your listeners is okay. interested, there you go. They could feel free to to go and uh, write me an email. But uh, yeah, so right now we have uh, New York licenses and uh, Pennsylvania license and and some other jurisdictions as well. So, but if we don't have that, 
And if there's a state we need to move into, uh, we'll just get local council. We have a wonderful local council in Connecticut who we've been working with since 2018 now, and he's just done a, a really excellent job with us. So if I'm an employee in, say, California, could you still represent me? We could, uh, technically. Um, we'd have to evaluate the case and see if that's you know somewhere where we'd want to extend ourselves to. Um, right now, we're um, kind of looking a lot in the Northeast is, is mainly where we're interested in. And uh, we, you know, like I said, those three states we've already opened up operations in. Right. Okay. So I have friends out in California. It's just curious. So. In, my, in my prior life, when I worked for uh, National Right to Work, I had a lot of clients in California. I think I spent I bet. more of my life in California actually than home. So. Right. I bet. Yeah. Um, so the Allentown Symphony case, um, and this should not be confused for some listeners with the Atlanta Opera case. This is the Allentown, Pennsylvania Symphony case, right? That's correct. Yep. I, I saw this article um, is probably a couple weeks ago now, and that one has some interesting ramifications to it, I think. And that's kind of what I wanted to ask you. So can you kind of describe that one? Yeah, it does. So the background here is our client, um, Glenn uh, Wachowski. He's the principal tempanist um, in the symphony, and that's basically a particular type of drum uh, percussion instrument. And so he um, he joined the the symphony and and uh, got this position uh, many years ago. And he was basically told you have to be a member of the union and pay union dues in order to keep your job here. And uh, so kind of begrudgingly, he didn't really want to become part of the union, but he really wanted this job. This is like a dream job for him. So he went ahead and uh, signed up for the union. And then in um, 2021, he, he really had some pretty significant disagreements from the union and, and stopped um, basically funding them. Uh, Janice had come out in 2018 and kind of a short recap of that, basically in the public sector, um, until Janice, there, the law was that non-members could be charged a, a certain fee amount and uh, a percentage of the full union dues. And what that was was kind of a complicated thing, and it varied by state. But the point being, even if you were not a member of the union, you still had to pay uh, the union something. But then when Janice came along, the United States Supreme Court said, actually non-members don't have to pay the union anything because that's an infringement of their First Amendment rights. So Glenn kind of got wind of this. And so he wanted, um, you know, he was out of the union and so he shouldn't have had to pay them anything because now he's a non-member. And uh, he, but he still wants to perform, but their CBA uh, says that he has to be a member of the union um, in order to perform, and he has to pay uh, union dues. And so um, he contacted us, and, and, it's, and like you said, it's actually really interesting because the union in, in this situation is treating his workplace like it's a private sector. So the, the symphony is a nonprofit uh, mm -hmm. organization. But under Pennsylvania law, um, nonprofits, there's, uh, there's like two different ways they can be um, actually considered a public employer and as a nonprofit and then receiving state and uh, federal um, grants basically uh, makes them public employer as well. And so 
we looked into it and we said, well, actually, Glenn, if, if you're not a member of the union, uh, you shouldn't have to pay them anything, actually. And the first issue of whether you have to be a union member or not, that's just illegal and unconstitutional in our view uh, anyway. And so he, he really kind of has two issues, whether he's a member and then if he's not a member, whether he should have to pay or not. In the private sector, because Pennsylvania is not a right-to-work state, he would have to pay. But because if he's under Janus, if his employer is a public employer, which makes him a public employee, he shouldn't have to pay. Well, yeah, so to clarify, um, you kind of hit this a little bit. In the private sector, he would have to pay as an agency fee payer, but not necessarily a member of the union. Yeah, that's correct. Um, so Janus was basically the public sector right-to-work equivalent. And right. so um, since Pennsylvania is not a right-to-work state, private employees, when even when they're non-members, still can be charged an agency fee. So what, what was interesting in the article is this may be heading to the Supreme Court. It, and I'm not sure why this would be different from say, a normal AFSCME case under Janice, or is that due yeah, to the I fact think, that the symphony is taking money? Well, I think I think the rub here could be um, what, what actually constitutes uh, a public employee? How far does Janice extend? You know, is are there going to be any lines drawn between like, okay, well, a public employee maybe under, or employer under state law, but they're kind of look like a private employer, you know, like I think that this case actually brings up some pretty interesting facts as far as you have a symphony that's, you know, a private in, employer, except under PA law. Now they're defined as a public employer, which then makes presumably their, their employees, public employees. And so uh, on its face, it actually, it, it could be simple, but it has some twists. Basically it's extending Janus to bargaining units that have traditionally been um, treated as uh, private, you know, private bargaining units. So would that be um, only because they're taking state or let me extend that a little bit, federal monies? Uh, under Pennsylvania law, that's, that's one of the ways um, there's, there's another way that it's not totally clear that a, a nonprofit can be also considered a, a public in, employer, but um, they've confirmed that they, they do receive uh, certain government grants. And so I think that uh, puts them into that category. So I, I, this may be an unfair question. I don't want to ask it to, for you to have to get into any specifics, but the way I read that is if, in fact, that if it were to go to the Supreme Court and if it were to go, you know, have a decision that possibly this would extend to, say, hospitals or, you know, that are receiving federal monies, Medicare, for example, or it could extend to um, any other, say, playhouse or theater or anything that's getting state grants anywhere. Would that be safe to assume? I, I think that um, it would, well, you know, like all things, it would have to be, it, we'd have to see how the, the Supreme Court would come out on it. But I think in Pennsylvania, at least because of how the law is written, it could have a lot of implications for nonprofits, like you mentioned, hospitals, playhouses, those types of things, um, situations where they normally would probably consider themselves uh, private employers. Um, that actually might open up 
hey, guess what? Janus actually applies to your bargaining units. All over the place. Yeah. Potentially. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I think it could have um, pretty um, far-reaching ramifications. Again, uh, definitely uh, in, in Pennsylvania. So That's fascinating. Um, in, in one would think that the, whether it's AFL-CIO or somebody might, you know, knock at the, the uh, musician's union door and say, you might want to settle this case. So. Yeah, that, that sometimes happens. You know, interestingly, um, so going back to Janice, uh, Janice came out of, uh, well, basically was the fix to a case back in 1977 called Abood, where the Supreme Court said you can um, charge non-members uh, a certain fee, fair share fee, uh, agency fee, something like that. And so if you fast forward then to 2012, that was the Knox case, which was where Judge Justice Alito wrote, hey, maybe we didn't get a booed correct on this, you know, and kind of threw the flag mm-hmm. on, maybe we should look at this again. And then in 2014, you had Harris, um, and, you know, and, and then in 2016, um, you had, or you had a different case that sadly Justice Scalia passed away, so it was tied 4-4. Um, that was the Friedrichs case. And then in 2018, you had Janice. So that was a progression. But I say all that to say in 2012, the Knox case was a case out of California where the um, union collected a fee from everybody for a political fight back fund and non-members and members alike. And it seemed to be a very clear violation of what they could do for a non-member the lawsuit was filed. Everyone expected it to settle. And uh, they they dug in their heels and this case started progressing up. And like the unions were like, other unions, the word on the street is anyway, the outside unions were like, hey, settle, settle, settle. But SEIU was just indignant. And they just kept going mm-hmm. up. Well, once it got to the U.S. Supreme Court, they did try to moot it out. And the Supreme Court was like, nope, You've come too far. We're going to handle this. And so kind of like what you're saying, it's a really interesting thing where sometimes the case that you don't think is going to do anything actually makes its way up. And that was really the start of this whole line of cases that led, uh, finished with Janice and and finally, um, you know, had fair share fees struck down in the public sector. So it's really interesting how these things develop sometimes. Sometimes there's too much hubris. (laughs) <laughs> Indeed, sometimes there is. Um, so let me ask you: the some of the is the genesis to some of these cases uh, the CWA versus Beck decision, which was I think nineteen eighty nine, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, Beck is so Beck was more about talking to people about their um, their rights under the law. Um, it was kind of a, a procedural case, basically like, okay, here's the legal scenario and here's how you have to implement it. And the public sector equivalent to that was a case called Hudson, and it was in 1986. And so you, in 1977, oh, okay. you had a boot which said, okay, unions, you can collect fees from these non-members, good luck. And then they were implementing it in all sorts of different ways. And in in 1986, the court stepped in and said, okay, wait, now there's going to be, there are procedural 
uh, violations and, and thoughts here. So we're going to make you do a annual audit and we're going to make you give notice to all the non-members and they're going to get a chance to challenge the calculation, you know, whether it should be 89% of the union dues or just 60% of union dues, you know, would be appropriate to charge them. So that it, Beck was kind of the equivalent of Hudson in that way. Okay. Yeah. As I was, um, I was actually in the union movement when Beck came down and, and is my alma mater that lost that case. And I remember, uh, you know, okay. the sky, the sky was falling. So yeah. how, how horrible that was. Yeah. According yeah. to the unions, but right. Yeah. I think the, the case that you kind of picked up on, with um, the symphony is is really an interesting um, line. Really, we've we've done an, we have another case going in Connecticut where it's a union that's used to operating in the private sector, and so they're charging a uh, a non-member uh, fees. And and again, they're actually telling her she had to be in the union couldn't leave the union and has to pay them, but she's actually employed by the city of New Haven. She's a public employee. And so from those two examples, it makes me think that there are probably a fair number of bargaining units out there, uh, you know, groups of employees where they might actually uh, be public employees and they should be getting Janus rights, but they have a union and an employer that's just treating it like a private sector situation and uh, so these folks aren't getting their rights. Right. Well, and I think what struck me with the, the Allentown one is, um, I mean, I, I kind of like stay up at night thinking about this stuff. But <laughs> basically, if, if you've got government monies paying a even somewhat private entity, um, you know, does that include everybody who's receiving government monies? Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting question. We have a case in, well, we have two cases in New York City with the Long Island Railroad. And uh, now this gets us under the Railway Labor Act, which is a really dicey area of law, and it's, and it's tough. But it's really actually interesting to, to ponder because in a way you'd say, well, the railway is private, it's a business, that type of thing. Um, but they receive so much government funding. And in New York, actually, um, the Metro uh, Transit Authority is, uh, and the railway is basically considered a public employer again. Um, so does Janus apply there or does it not? And and that's what uh, our cases up there are the questions that that's being asked up there. So it, it'd be another, those would be significant in the sense of extending Janus uh, to the RLA to to employees there, where that's where you have your airlines and your and your railway folks, right? And that so is that one going straight to federal courts? Those two were both filed in federal court. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. It's a, my recollection. RLA is is there's no there's the NMB, but if you've got a suit of some sort, it goes straight to federal court. Yep, yep. You bring it right in federal court. So would that um, so not to get into politics, partisan politics, but we have a lot of government monies that are being proposed to go to build back better or the green new deal or something like that. And there's, um, I think the competes act, which is kind of stalled in the Senate right now. But if, if you had a, a private contractor, so to speak, collecting government monies to build infrastructure, could that theory kind of go to that like federal contractors? 
Yeah, I mean, you'd wonder, right? If, if uh, you know, under Pennsylvania law, if you get grants from state and federal government, and that creates a public employer situation, if you're a government contractor and you're receiving public money, does that in some way make you a public employer or at least your employees should get public employee rights? I mean, I think it's a good question. I don't know that we know the answer to that, honestly. Right. So from a timing standpoint, um, where do you sit with Allentown right now? The symphony well, case? We just filed the, the case there in federal court. So uh, we, uh, you know, service is going on. We'll have to have our case management uh, meeting with the, with the court, those types of things. So we're very, very early in that process. Interesting. So it, you know, invariably there'll be some union listener somewhere listening to this. And if they have any juice with the other unions are probably going to be calling up and saying, settle, settle, settle. (laughs) (laughs) They may, or, you know, they, they may feel like they're right on this and, and I, you know, that's for the courts to figure out. Right. You know, interesting. Help me out with the legal side of this. If the, you've got it into the first step of the federal courts, if it gets dismissed, you then appeal it to the, the this would go to the third circuit. That's, okay. Yep. Yeah. This would go to the third circuit. And then of course I would imagine whoever would lose there would probably um, ask for a uh, review for cert from the U S Supreme court. So it may be a couple years down the road. Right. Oh yeah. Yep. This is probably a, a multi-year endeavor, much like most of our uh, federal litigation, even, even state litigation. We actually have a case that was the very first case filed by the fairness center in, I think September or November of 2014. That's still uh, in state court today. It's still an active case. So wow. yeah, we're uh, so I often tell our clients, you know, just so you know, this could be years. I had one client who uh, I said to her, I said, well, you know, we might, we might uh, be friends for like five years. And she laughed. And uh, in the fifth year of her lawsuit, she was like, you know, I didn't believe you at first, but, but here we are <laughs> five years later. I said, yep, that's true. But, you know, that's what I really love about our work. Uh, because you're connected with these folks for many years, you get to know them. A lot of times they're spouses or kids, or you get invited to birthday parties and you just, because our work's so neat where we get to offer uh, legal representation to these people who all, you know, ultimately their case might be worth a couple hundred dollars, but so financially it's, you know, low, but when it comes to constitutional rights, I mean, the first amendment is so important. And so they're stepping up in a principled way to protect their constitutional rights. But oftentimes it would not make any sense for them to go and get an attorney, you know, a private attorney right. that charges, you know, four or five, you know, thousand dollars an hour because that, you know, that's just ridiculous. You, it doesn't make any sense. So we're able to offer high level legal representation for these people to step up, defend their constitutional rights and uh, really to, um, do that in a in a, a really good principled way. So I love it because these people are are great um, um, clients, but they're great people too, and you get to know them and often become friends with them. Let me ask you: Why does it take so long for like you had a case from 2014 that's still ongoing? Why is it taking so long to get these heard and adjudicated? Yeah, it's um, sometimes court dependent. So you have some courts that are rocket dockets where you file your case and within a couple of weeks, the, the court 
you know, wants to get a case management plan together and just get the thing moving. Um, other times there are slower dockets where um, it just takes a while. You file the case, you have, you know, a month or two, even sometimes longer for service on the other party. And uh, then uh, once you tell the court, okay, everyone's been served, they then put out a notice of when the case management conference is going to be. And that might be a couple months down the road. And then you plan out basically, you know, the next 15 months of the case with discovery and then motions and, uh, you know, all the briefing that has to go on. Usually people are given 30 days per brief. So you're talking about, you know, one brief to get fully briefed can take over two months, three months, and then it gets in front of the court and then they sit with it for a couple months before they issue a decision. And then that can, you know, rinse and repeat multiple times per case. Do the um, do the unions try to stall it at all, or is it is it just the courts itself? Well, I think it's you know, all attorneys have their preference of whether they want to move a case quickly or not, and so I think there's strategy to um, when we try to make cases go quickly or when we want them to slow down a little bit for various considerations. But even if everyone was pushing to get it done as quickly as possible, it's just the legal system is just a slow kind of machine. So I often I, tell clients, you know, the wheels of justice turn slowly. Right. So I, I ask that because, you know, on the private sector side, um, there's the common union complaint that the national labor relations board acts so slowly, mm-hmm. but on the, it sounds like on the legal side in the court system, it's even worse. Yeah. I mean, in, I guess in defense of the judges, they just have, so many cases and you know you want to get it you want to get it right i've never met a judge who doesn't want to make the correct decision and so they take time to research it hopefully write a well thought out and reasoned opinion and uh, all that takes a lot of time and and then you have the litigants you know filing motions or coming into court or you know what what have you so it's when done properly i think it's just a long process well, in the in the Allentown case, um, the original filing there was with what the PERB, the public. No, that was actually in federal court. Oh, the so, the yep. initial filing. Okay. Yep. Yeah, we're in the Eastern District with with that case. And then, like, say Connecticut, that would be also federal first. Yeah, a lot of these when they uh, implicate. First Amendment rights, freedom of speech, association, those types of things, you can go right to federal court under the 42 U.S.C. 1983. So it allows you basically, if you've had your constitutional rights infringed upon or violated, you can go right into federal court. Interesting. Okay. So it's, yeah. it's less political that way. Yeah. You, you try to get to, to courts where it's, you know, lifetime appointments. They're not, they're not a, they're not uh, running for re-election, those types of things. You hope that that kind of takes the politics out of it a bit. So, right. Well, but, you know, state- I'll, I'll tell you, one of the the most wonderful judges we've had ever had that I thought was so even-handed and just intelligent and just thought through the case so well was actually um, a judge in Connecticut. I won't give his name away, but. He, um, I just thought he just did one of the most magnificent jobs, really. And uh, so it's, you know, I think you can find really good judges at, at every level. Yeah, the partisan politics, I would think, would come in more at the state board levels. 
because they're appointed by governors and their constituents, so to speak. And and it's hard at the the state labor board. So I used to do private sector work as well in front of the NLRB. And what's hard there is you really lose control of the process in a way. So your client files the board charge, but then it's in the hands of the board officer to do the the research on it and collect the information and then put together a recommendation whether to carry it through or not. And even if they do issue a complaint, then they're actually litigating the case and it's kind of out of your hands. And so, you know, as an attorney representing a client, you always kind of want that control. You want to be able to depose people or collect documents or, you know, structure the case as you want it. And so with board charges generally, uh, they're they're really out of your hands in a lot of ways. Yeah, the, and of course, it's also very partisan, unfortunately. Well, I mean, they they are appointed, so <laughs> right. Yeah, no, it's, I, I've had a number of uh, podcast guests that that we talk about the swinging pendulum each each administration. Yeah, well, I mean, it's really interesting, right, with the NLRB. So there's there's a whole like group of cases where under one administration, this is the law. And then you go to the next right, administration right. and they're just constantly overruling these cases back and forth. And so I would think as a business owner, it'd be particularly difficult because, you know, one one four year term, this is the law and the next four year term, this is the law. And you're constantly dealing with that instability, which is, again, really um, when you talk about precedent and overruling precedent, why it's a really big deal that our judicial system has some stability so that people know what the laws are and they know how to order their lives accordingly. Yeah. And we're, and we're literally in the middle of it right now in the private sector with the, the NLRB general counsel, who's trying to ban captive audience meetings, doing card check and a whole bunch of stuff. So yeah, I've kind of, I've kind of lost track of the the private sector a bit since we're like public sector focused. But. Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting time. I've been I've been doing labor relations or labor related work for nearly forty years, including close to a decade in the union movement, and it's very tumultuous right now. Wow. So, yeah, I bet you've seen a lot then. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> but it's fun. It's fascinating. Yeah. So uh, all the yeah. Amazon stuff, Starbucks stuff. Um, yeah, so yeah, that has been very interesting. So what else do you have going on? You, it, we started out by saying how your caseload has increased and mm -hmm. how is it how is it increasing or how do you see it increasing in the next few years? Yeah, so the I always talk about we kind of have three main um, veins of litigation. The one is uh, helping people with their constitutional and statutory rights, which is very much the cases we've talked about. Uh, I, I would think fall into that then. The next line of cases we, that we have really seen pick up is um, retaliation cases where we've helped someone uh, with their, you know, vindicate their constitutional rights, but then the union officials will come back and find a way to try to retaliate against them. And so, of course, we want to be there for them on that as well. And then the third line of cases uh, is union corruption cases. And uh, that really gets us into pretty interesting situations because we go, you know, deep in the weeds on those. We do discovery. We've hired uh, forensic accountants before and private investigators. And it just really gets um, uh, really into the weeds uh, a lot deeper than um, a lot of cases go because you're literally trying to ferret out where union officials have um, 
acted corruptly. And so, for instance, in one case we have right now in Pennsylvania, the local union treasurer was writing checks to himself and to his union official friends right from the the main checking account of, of the local union. And he was just mm-hmm. signing himself over money. And uh, it was over $20,000. And when our clients first came to us in that case, they had kind of pieced some things together and they said, this is what we think is going on. And we were thinking like, boy, is it really that blatant? And so we filed a civil lawsuit for them um, alleging uh, certain things, but basically that this guy was self-dealing and breaking a bunch of the union rules by signing you know, the money over to himself. And a month later, the Pennsylvania State Police um, Organized Crime Unit actually swept in and arrested the guy on uh, charges equivalent, the criminal equivalent basically to what our clients had sued him for civilly and so we were like whoa yeah actually there was something there so why why wouldn't the dol be doing that 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 sounds like a a classic dol investigation yeah i i i i haven't really seen the dol get get involved in in those types of things um so much and uh i mean that's i think one of the reasons why you know we're here because you know, the no one else had come to these clients. A, actually, they had fished it around to a couple of different organizations and places, and no one would touch it. And uh, mm-hmm. we were kind of like their firm of last resort. And uh, we went in uh, on it with them. And sure enough, it's there. Um, it happened. And our clients are actually making uh, major changes to how this union is now running its business. Uh, we're in the discovery phase right now with them, but they're, they're already changing. You know, they weren't keeping receipts. They weren't doing, you know, balancing any sorts of books, you know, all this type of thing. <laughs> it was really bad. And uh, now they're doing all these things, which is what they should have been doing in the first place. So our client's case really uh, helped them there. We had a, a corruption case up in Connecticut where uh, in open court, they'd admitted to um, illegal pack filings and illegal loans and flying their fiancés and girlfriends around to like Hawaii and St. Croix and buying Motown tickets, like all this wild stuff. We had a four-day um, evidentiary hearing um, up in Connecticut in, in that case. And it's amazing what came out, um, came out of that. I mean, the union treasurer basically admitted that the union president was uh, buying way more than he should have on his credit card, but he said, well, he doesn't get paid that much, so I just kind of looked the other way. It's okay. Oh, nice. So, I mean, yeah, <laughs> I mean, like, it was wild stuff. So, uh, but we get into that, and and I think a lot of times unions have never been held accountable for this. The union officials just kind of do what they want, and again, it costs so much money to bring these types of lawsuits you know, for instance, the the forensic accountant that we got in, in one of our cases alone was six figures. And so mm-hmm. for an ordinary person to be able to bring this type of lawsuit to hold union officials accountable when they've acted corruptly would just be kind of insane. And and that's why we exist and why we're here to give them free legal representation. Now, these uh, the the cases you just mentioned are are both public sector unions, right? That's correct. Yep. Yeah, this, it sounded when you're talking about the 
union officials flying around and it sort of sounded like the UAW, you know, what brought down the executives of the UAW over the last five years. Right. Right. Yeah. No, it, it was a, it was a different union than that. It was a public, it, uh, it was a firefighters union, actually the mm. state affiliate. So, which I don't know if you had followed it. I'm not real up on it, but IAFF had had some real problems a year or two ago. Um, uh, with the with, president, right? Yeah, with their president, I think Harold. I forget his last name. Schlitzberger or, yeah. or something like yeah. that. Yeah, where he was taking salary and pension or something like that. So. Yeah, I remember seeing some of the articles. I don't remember the details of it, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I think he's since retired. If I recall. Uh, I think Lost so. It. He might have, but you know, it's. It, I mean, it just shows that there's a lot of corruption at a lot of different levels and uh, sometimes not. But uh, I, I think again, when we can be there to help a client when they suspect union officials are doing something like that, then um, that's, that's a good place for us to be. That's something we're doing that I don't think many other people are doing. So. Yeah. It's, it's unfortunate because um, well, let me put this gently. It's unfortunate that you folks have to do that when there's, supposed safeguards that have been both within union structures as well as federal laws that have been passed to protect workers and their dues. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's sometimes the unions structurally actually have the checks in place. They just don't enforce them to, right. you know, to protect against this. So for instance, in the case of the union treasurer who was writing checks to himself, um, for a number of years, there actually were um, official pr policies and procedures in place that should have caught that, uh, but they just never enforced them. And that's actually part of our, our client's um, argument, which was you've kind of violated your deal to us because you weren't doing the things you promised you would do. And was, um, was there any kind of discipline with that treasurer internally with the union? I don't believe so. I think they just kind of let the the state police arrest them and the criminal charges <laughs> go forward. <laughs> well, and, and I, I say that because with the UAW, you had um, a couple of the national presidents that were either indicted or just about to be indicted that um, the union, the UAW, was going to put them on trial, and they resigned yeah. their entire membership before they were yeah. put on trial. So I was kind of curious. Yeah, well, you know, we have... We have a case up in New York City. Uh, we have a gentleman who we represent, and we filed both a federal lawsuit over membership and Janice, actually. But then we filed board charges for him because there they um, is uh, AFSCME DC uh, 37 up in mm -hmm. New York City, and they were trying to um, get them decertified and get a different union in. Well, in kind of retaliation for that, um, one of the things that one of those that union official did was he photoshopped our client's head on the body of someone shaking um, the hand of a Ku Klux Klan member and posted. Oh, nice. Yeah. And our client happens to be African-American. So it was like doubly insulting, I suppose, and, and just wild and crazy. But that's the type of stuff he's doing. He actually went on a six, seven, eight minute Facebook post tirade about our client saying all these horrible things and lying about them. And, and uh, so we filed the board charge 
with interference of his rights to, um, you know, organize and those types of things. But that guy is still in union leadership. They haven't taken him out. They haven't been like, oh, man, that's really horrific stuff. Maybe we should remove him. Nope. He's still there. He's still doing his thing. And uh, so not a lot of accountability. Does does the member have any uh, recourse with defamation? Uh, we weren't sure on this one that, that he would, we, we took the the best route that we thought to help get him the relief he was looking for. Interesting. Yeah. It's amazing what happens out there on the streets, so to speak. And oh yeah. Yep. It, most of the time people don't even report it or try to fight it. It just, you right. know, I got screwed. I'm going to go over to the next job. Well, and, and who do you report it to? So a right. lot of times yeah, the employer doesn't really do anything you can't report it to the union because it's usually the union officials that are doing it so uh if you don't aren't able to find a firm like ours you don't really have anyone that's on your side often and i have a a colleague that i've known for years that came out of one of the unions um and he was fairly high up in a union local um out in in the midwest and he uh found that the union local president was doing some corrupt activities. And so he reported him up to the international union who then went back to the local president and said, Hey, so-and-so, you know, ratted you out and he wound up getting fired. (laughs) So, wow. And he was, you know, he was fairly high up in, in the uh, union. So director of organizing actually, but, and then, got another friend or colleague that uh, was a organizer for a major union, international union. And um, of course they're oftentimes not unionized themselves, the organizers. So he went to form a union. This made the newspapers years ago, but um, he started a a union among the organizers and then he got fired from his job. Wow. So, yeah, no, I often say our, our clients are, incredibly brave people because they're willing to step out and put their name on a lawsuit or a board charge and to try to, you know, hold these union officials accountable for what they've done. And that really, in a way, puts puts a pretty big target on their back because they're, they're you know, suing these people in a court of law, which is kind of a big deal. I was just going to ask you that as you're starting to talk about that, and you mentioned retaliation. Um, does it ever get, do they get threats of physical violence or is it just merely retaliation on the job? I'm not sure that I've recently heard of um, threats of physical violence. Uh, for instance, what the, we had a case, the, one of the cases I was talking to you about, about the the railway, railway, whoo, can't speak today, railway uh, case up in New York City, where when he resigned and became a non-member, he was actually taken off the overtime list, which maybe doesn't sound that big of a deal, but uh, these folks rely on overtime as a significant part of their income, really. It's kind of like a waiter right. or waitress where they get paid a base, but then they count on tips to kind of make up the rest of it. So they um, really make a bulk of their income through uh, overtime. So when the union got him pulled off the overtime list, he really lost a significant amount of, of uh, income. And so we brought the lawsuit in, basically accusing them of retaliation and got him put back on the overtime list. But it's stuff like that, or, you know, they'll, 
they'll get a phone call maybe about like, wow, looks like, you know, you work a lot of overtime. It'd be, you know, kind of be a shame if, if that went away or something like that. You the know, subtle things. stuff. Yep. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Hmm. Have you, um, have you ever calculated like, you know, you may get 1% of the people that are actually getting screwed for lack of a better term, but you know, if yours are the ones that bubble up to the surface and they actually contact you. How, how many do you think are not contacting you that are just letting it go? I think there's probably a lot because I think a lot of times people don't even realize when their rights have been violated. Um, you know, for instance, we, we have uh, done a lot of cases over maintenance and membership, which is basically resignation restrictions. In Pennsylvania, there's a law that says the union and the employer can limit your right to resign to a 15-day window period uh, once per bargaining uh, cycle, basically, or contract cycle. So what that amounts to is you have the right to resign your union membership during a 15 day window period, maybe every three to four years. Right. And so you have to know about it. You have to get your resignation in properly, all these types of things. So um, we've had a number of clients who have tried to resign and were told no, uh, but then they found us and we were able to help them. But to your point, I think there's a lot of people who, you know, in that instance, have probably over the years tried to resign or have talked to a union official and said, hey, can I get out? And the union official just points to the law or the CBA and says, well, this says you can't. And they just go, oh, okay, I guess I'll have to wait. And um, where really that law, we would argue, is unconstitutional. There's been two court cases that has basically said as much that you can't restrict a, you know, a person's right to leave the union. But this law still stands because the unions really never let a, a lawsuit get far enough to get it struck down. And the benefit they have is this law is still on the books and they can always point to it when someone says, hey, I want to resign. And they say, oh, sorry, the law says you can't. So let me back you up for a second. They don't let the lawsuits get far enough. That means they settle each one individually. Like you threaten them with a the lawsuit and they say, okay, fine that person can resign? Yeah, a lot of times we will um, actually file the lawsuit and then that's when they say, oh, they're out and here's all their back dues and we've mooted out the case. So for instance, the um, we've filed two class action cases over this where people were told they couldn't resign and get out. And both bargaining units there were about 10,000 people. And so how the union mooted that out was to say, your clients are out and for the bargaining units, we're going to pull out the resignation restrict restriction from the collective bargaining agreements. So now people can get out whenever they want. And then we had another case for a client, same sort of situation. Um, and that union also said, in addition to giving all your clients money back and letting him out, we're going to pull the resignation restriction out of that one too. And then we've had a couple other, basically the effect has been for uh, three really large unions in Pennsylvania, there's no more resignation restrictions in the collective bargaining agreement, and they are actually letting people out whenever they try to resign. But it came through us just, you know, repetitive litigation over and over and over about this issue 
But guess what? The law is still on the book because the case has never progressed far enough for a court to strike down the law as unconstitutional. Interesting. And and without a plaintiff, you can't really get it that far. And then if the the union settles, then it just dies. Yeah, and you you know you do what's in the best interest of the client. So if the if the client's gotten back everything they could possibly get um, in court, there's you can't go any further with them, and it and it is in their best interest to like let the case go. And the unions know that because they know how to move these things out. Right. But I'm convinced if if they ever were to fight that, that the the courts would find that law unconstitutional. But again, the benefit to keeping it around is you know your normal um, public school teacher or public employee, they don't follow this stuff. They don't live in this world. They don't even know, you know, like who among us thinks like, oh, there's a law. It's probably unconstitutional. I should challenge it. You know, they figure, well, if it's a law, it's a law, right? And and we don't question it. So I think, again, back to your point, I think there's a lot of people who are living under maybe an illegal law or procedure or practice, but they don't even realize it because they wouldn't even think that these types of things could be challenged. So th- this gets me to my next next question, and we've been on close to an hour, so maybe it should be my last question. But what you're talking about is kind of um, outreach, and you know, you've mentioned a couple times where the plaintiffs have found you. Mm-hmm. So what do you folks do for outreach to to educate people in terms of what their rights are, what they you know what may be happening to them, may be unlawful. Right. Yeah, we we usually, well, what we say is we represent people in the court of law and the court of public opinion. So uh, for our clients who, and this is most of them, who really want to help everybody else too, they say, you know, I was injured. I don't want other people to be injured. What we'll do is um, talk about their their cases, uh, whether in the press or we'll make a client video so that people can, you know, hear their story. And it's amazing how many people we get calling us after maybe I do a radio interview or something like this. Small and they say, little podcast. Yeah, you know, <laughs> like do a podcast or something. And they say, man, I heard you and I, I had no idea that that was actually illegal or that there would be anyone who could help me with that. And so we really see the outreach part of it as the court of public opinion and getting stories run, kind of like how you saw our our one client's Mm -hmm. story in the newspaper, you know, those types of things, just getting it out there as much as possible. That's cool. Well, Nathan McGrath, I'm going to put um, a bunch of links under the audio portion of this episode. And I, I really appreciate you coming on because I saw that article. I was very intrigued with the ramifications that could happen with it. And, and uh, I'm glad I got to know the Fairness Center much more. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Peter, for having me on and giving me an opportunity to share about our, our work. So we'll, we'll have to catch up as this thing progresses a little bit. That sounds like a plan. Okay. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. So that was Nathan McGrath with the Fairness Center. And as I mentioned at the outset, I was very intrigued with the Allentown Symphony case. But as I got to talking to him and and learned more about the Fairness Center, I was also intrigued with some of their other cases. In any case, if you're an attorney, as he mentioned, that uh, is looking for some work up in Connecticut and for a noble cause, reach out to them on their website or 
email him. And I'm going to leave the links to the website as well as uh, some of the other information under the audio portion of this episode of Labor Relations Radio. In any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. If you want to reach out, reach out on Twitter at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Give us a call at 1-888-668-6466 or leave us a comment under the audio portion. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. You have been listening to Labor Relations Radio.